Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, and it's been a, a wild few days since we last recorded on Friday morning. St. Bonaventure uh, snapped Rhode Island's 16-game winning streak. Michigan State came from 27 down on the road to beat Northwestern. Villanova smoked Xavier again. Auburn uh, lost at South Carolina, lost to key player two. Kentucky snapped its four-game losing streak, and we will get to some of that, if not all of that, at various points in this podcast. But I wanted to start by focusing on the Big 12 because there were multiple interesting developments in that league this week in Kansas uh, beat West Virginia to improve to 10 and 4 in the Big 12 then Texas Tech lost at Baylor to drop to 10 and 4 in the Big 12 so we have a tie for first in the league standings and Baylor is back in the CBS Sports top 25 and 1 thanks to a five game winning streak that features wins over first place Kansas and first place Texas Tech meantime Oklahoma lost again this time at home to Texas that's five straight losses to the Sooners they're now 16 and 10 overall 6 and 8 in the league after starting 14 and 2 overall 4 and 1 in the league Trey Young was once again not good 7 of 21 from the field 3 of 10 from three point range he had 26.7 assists three turnovers in a vacuum that's nice but he did not shoot the ball uh, well, uh, you know, once again, it was a, a problem, and Oklahoma really uh, got handled pretty easily on its home court. So let's stay here for a minute. Norlander, what did you make of Saturday's developments in the Big 12? Um, I, more and more, you know, I tweeted about the SEC on Saturday, and, you know, good luck trying to figure out what these teams are going to do in the tournament, uh, just in terms of the SEC and its unpredictability. Uh, the Big 12 is similar yet different, I feel. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a better league. It rates higher. It did better in non-conference play against uh, more highly ranked teams. And we – there's really no shortage of talking points here. I mean, you ask what I made of the Big 12. I guess my biggest headline – to me, I know this is not the, the, the biggest for everyone. To me, the biggest one is Baylor getting another win and beating Texas Tech and preventing the Red Raiders from, like, almost assuredly, you know, winning that Big 12 regular season title. That was the biggest thing. I feel like uh, Oklahoma's swoon and Trey Young's, uh, you know, continual slide uh, back to the mean is is the biggest result. I don't I wouldn't disagree with that from a mainstream standpoint. I think that is uh, the main headline with Huggins getting tossed and Kansas winning the way it did with such a massive free throw disparity, maybe being 1A to 1B there. Um, But when you look around the league, the Big 12 had a ton of interesting results. Um, Texas getting the win the way that it did when we last spoke, Parrish, you expected the Longhorns to not make it into the NCAA tournament. Let me just ask you, now that they have this road win, would you change your opinion after what they did against Oklahoma? Perhaps. I'm still not sold. I mean, that What happened yesterday in Norman might say more about Oklahoma than it says about Texas, but either way, um, it is true. I did not think they would be able to go into that building and win, uh, given the way that they had been playing. Keep in mind, they had lost three straight uh, and four of five to drop to five and eight in the Big 12. But certainly, um, it, it was it was huge. I still think it is important to remember that the selection committee is going to judge them based on their current roster. That does not include and will not include Andrew Jones. And if they are looking for a reason to, to put them on the wrong side of the bubble, um, that's certainly going to, to – to be an, an obvious and, and, and perhaps even accurate reason uh, to do it. But um, 
you know, I haven't sat down and looked at a, a bracket or, or, or Jerry Palms or, or Joe Lenardi's bracket this morning. I'm honestly not even sure where they have Texas. But uh, certainly, they're in a better spot today than they were, say, Friday when we last talked because um, they went and they, you know, they got a, a quadrant one win on the road. Those are, those are worth a lot. I think that's going to wind up being a big-time victory when it gets, comes to Texas getting in the field. I said on the previous podcast I think they would eventually be in the field. Uh, now I'm, I'm very confident uh, given the amount of good wins they have. And I just I think this team will still get um, at least two more Quadrant 1 wins, and I think at the end of the day that's going to be enough there. Um, Kansas-West Virginia was an interesting game. Um, West Virginia fans or any non-Kansas fans listening to the podcast are probably – uh, ripe with bitterness over the fact that it was such a huge free throw disparity. I saw Seth Davis tweet it's not even the biggest free throw disparity in college basketball this season. That thirty-five to two difference between uh, the Jayhawks and the Mountaineers. I didn't bother to to research what might have been, or if he saw if he tweeted what that was. I missed uh, I missed uh, that in particular. Huggins did say in his um, five-minute post-game presser he's never had a, he can't remember a game in forty years of coaching where a team only shot two foul shots, um, and th- th- fair enough. Like, I get it. Th- there's no doubt about it. Uh, when you look over the, <laughs> the history of Fog Allen, there is definitely a whistle that plays uh, to the Jayhawks. I-, I think Kansas fans would even admit to that. Um, sometimes that criticism can be overblown. But if you really watch the way that West Virginia was playing and the way that it was thriving a lot in that game, relying on the perimeter and not attacking, whereas Kansas was almost relentlessly attacking West Virginia by necessity of going after that press, it's going to inherently give you a disparity in, in free throws. Uh, ultimately, it was a win that saved Kansas's chance at going 14 straight years, finishing atop the league. And for West Virginia, it's just piling up these losses where, yeah, I think it's just going to be a really dangerous five seed at the end of the day. It's going to have some nice wins, an accumulation of losses. It might be an interesting team that they have to evaluate when it comes to seeding. And if, if West Virginia's on the five line, uh, certainly will be a threat to get to the Elite Eight and knock off that, that, uh, that one seed in its region if it happened to meet such a team there. But, uh, but Hugs got tossed, and he made a good point afterward. You know, I don't know why you know, these 21-year-old players who aren't getting paid have to come in and explain why they missed a shot or they played badly, and yet you got these officials who don't have to answer to them. It's not a new criticism. It's been there. I've long said that uh, the officials, when, the time, when, you know, when situations uh, warrant it, um, go and sit at a dais for five minutes, answer three to five questions, uh, you know, I, I think that would be honestly better for the game, but we're not there, and uh, and that was one of Huggins' big critiques. Last thing on the Big 12 here, and feel free to respond however you'd like, uh, GP. I'll just circle back on Baylor getting the win that it did. It's won five straight. The team is now finally getting healthy for most of its season, and here's something I'm not convinced that the selection committee, unless it frankly, were to listen to a podcast like this, or if Scott Drew, who may or may not be like up to the task, like if Scott Drew is going to get out there and start saying, listen, you know, we had, uh, you know, just a rash of injury problems for the first two and a half months of the season. And when that was happening, yeah, we were up and down. Um, that could or should be taken into account. But Baylor finds itself on good footing now uh, in the top 25 and one. And with a with a home win, a close win, uh, we're able to hold on after a, a late three-pointer did not did not fall for Texas Tech. They sit at 17 and 10. And it's a big time push because I absolutely thought at the end of January when Baylor lost at Oklahoma at the time they were 12 and 10, I did not think Scott Drew's team was going to the NCAA 
tournament. Now I think they will, barring uh, a complete reversal. And by that, I mean they've got four games left on the schedule. If they lose three of their next four and drop the first Big 12 tournament game, we've got something. But otherwise, I think they're in. What are your thoughts on what we saw in the Big 12? Yeah, let me bounce around here. First, um, I circle back to Texas. Um, I looked at Jerry's updated bracket just now. He has them in the first four. And so right now, you know, according to Jerry Palm, they would be in the field. They got four regular season games left, obviously, two on the road, two at home. They have to go to two, they have to go to Kansas State. Kansas State's playing well right now. They have to go to Kansas State, and they have to go to Kansas. So good luck. And then they've got Oklahoma State at home and West Virginia at home. I think they probably need to go two and two in those to feel like they're in decent shape heading into the Big 12 tournament. And then they'll probably um, – Either way, have maybe have some work to do. Like and by that I mean, won't be in a position to just lose their opening game and and feel safe. You know, obviously, what happens around the country um, matters. You know, it's, this stuff never happens in a vacuum. But the win at Oklahoma was huge, if only because the alternative to a win would have been a loss, and a loss would have dropped them to five and nine in the in the Big Twelve, and it would take one of those quadrant one wins they now have off of a off the resume so just a, a big big win they've got a chance and given that they've lost they had lost four or five before yesterday and not to mention you know or, uh, having to do this without Andrew Jones the idea that they're sitting here right now and they've got a chance is um is probably pretty good um with Baylor uh you know Jerry doesn't have them in the field right now and I have them in the top 25 and one at, at number 25 and so I've had some people ask me how can you have them there and he have them there or vice versa I think the simple answer to that is Jerry and I are doing very different things he is trying to replicate what the uh, selection committee would do um, right now by using their methods that means he is heavily reliant on the RPI I honestly don't even look at the RPI uh, like sometimes people will say, hey, well, this team is – I don't even know. I don't look at it. I, I, I find it to be um, an inferior grouping tool. Now, if you made me a bracketologist tomorrow and said I needed to be trying to, to do what the selection committee is going to do, then, then I'd start paying a lot more attention to the RPI and the quadrant one wins and all that stuff. But we talked a lot about the quadrant system last uh, podcast, and I told you why I think it's, it's flawed. A move in the right direction – but it's flawed. Obviously, the RPI data is, is flawed. So Jerry and I, Jerry and I are, are just doing very different things. He is trying to replicate what the committee's doing. I'm strictly ranking basketball teams. And I don't, you know, and Baylor, like, I'm not saying you have to have them in the top 25 tomorrow. Like, uh, when the AP poll comes out, if they're not ranked, I'm not going to go find all the voters who didn't rank Baylor and, and use a poll text column on them. Uh, but it's very reasonable to have them in the top 25 right now because – They've got, after yesterday, five top 50 Ken Palm wins. And then you and I have spent some time on this podcast talking about how the losses have to matter. They don't have very many bad losses. They only have one sub-50 Ken Palm loss. So five top 50 wins, only one sub-50 loss. So, yeah, they got 10 losses, but nine of them are, are to, you know, possible, if not likely, NCAA tournament teams. In other words, the resume is pretty good, and it's a testament to Scott Drew. He's turned into one of the most – one of the more consistent winners in, in college basketball. The, able, the idea that he's able to keep Baylor respectable year in and year out um, is, is impressive, uh, particularly when the way he's doing it now is almost the opposite of, of what he was early in his career. Like once upon a time, Baylor was like consistently recruiting McDonald's All-Americans, top 50 guys, top 100 guys. I mean, they still get a good level of, of – 
of prospect, but they do not get the level of prospect they used to get, and yet they are winning as consistently um, as they've ever won. I do think, um, you know, if they close okay, they're going to end up in the NCAA tournament. Um, the Kansas-West Virginia thing, I'm glad you said what you said because sometimes people will look at a box score and they'll see that one team shot 35 free throws and one team shot two and conclude that the officiating must have been horrible. And it, it might have been, but I've never looked at field free throw attempt, a discrepancy in field free throw attempts, and automatically gone to, well, the refs were terrible or the refs were cheating or that's what home court advantage is. Like I always tell people, oh, I understand one team shot more free throws than the other, but why was that? Can you tell me what calls the refs missed? And can you tell me where they blew the whistle when they shouldn't have? Like, give me examples. And I'll be honest, I was writing about Villanova Xavier, so I didn't watch Kansas-West Virginia as closely as maybe you did and certainly lots of people did. I had it on, but, you know, I had it muted and I was, I was writing a column. 35-2 um, and two is obviously a massive discrepancy. I can understand why Huggs was mad. I can understand why he got tossed. I can understand why he said um, what he said in the postgame. Um, but, you know, sometimes, and again, that's, that's, that's drastic. This is an extreme example. But sometimes when a team shoots more free throws than the other in a noticeable way, it is simply because one team is shooting jump shots and the other team is driving the ball, and um, that is a way you get a lot of, of whistles. So I, I don't know if you watched that as closely. Were the refs terrible, or did the numbers just end up looking the way they looked? I wouldn't say it was particularly brutally officiated, and I'm – you know, Huggins knew he was asking for it to get the toss. The game had been decided at that point. There were, what, like 14 seconds left. Kansas went up six, and he was getting his money's worth and, and letting him know. And then his his primary issue that he didn't elaborate too, too much on, because, frankly, he doesn't want a, rep a reprimand from the league and he doesn't want a fine, is every season in the preseason, you know, they, they send out these videos. Here are our points of emphasis. Here are, Here's how we're going to officiate things. And Huggins' frustration is – you get to league play, and sometimes uh, the officials, whereas they might have been more on their game as it pertained to like having a specific emphasis when it came to the block charge rule or how they're def or how they're uh, calling a whistle uh, tight or loose or, or otherwise or any particular points of emphasis, that can sometimes change when you get to mid-February. You're playing on the in the league in a tough road game, particularly at that venue, and so he's frustrated. I totally get it. No fault to Huggins whatsoever. Wasn't the best whistle. Wasn't the worst whistle. It's it, when you see 35 to two though, you're just you're never going to talk people down off that point like there's no business for Kansas to ever have that much of a disparity when they're already getting a beneficial chirp in that building to begin with and I would not fight that and again I think Kansas fans if they're honest with themselves they know that 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 crowd there you've been in that building I've been in that building they are intelligent passionate but they are on those refs in with a fever immediately and there's just no way that that can't have some sort of long-term influence on the way that games are called in Allen Fieldhouse perhaps more than any other venue in college basketball so it's already tough enough to get that but make no mistake West Virginia had this game it blew it it was trying you know Huggins said we were trying to get the right shot play with the right offense no they stalled they they basically went to a prevent defense if we want to use NFL nomenclature and it come it came back you know, and it bit him in the ass, and it, it put the Big 12 race still up for grabs between Tech and Kansas, and to me, it ruined West Virginia's hopes at a three seed. Um, I think there's been studies that show, like, officials are, you know, affected by 
you know, a home crowd that, you know, they're human. And, you know, when when every time you blow a whistle on one team, you get booed. And every time you blow a whistle on another team, you get cheered. That can have an impact on you. Uh, not everybody, but it can have an impact on you uh, in ways that you might not even, um, you know, be aware of. Also, you know, in the final seconds, and I know this wasn't the case yesterday, but in the final seconds of a close game, you know, if there's a block charge situation and somewhere in the back of your mind, you know, if I call this a charge, this f- crowd is going to be all over me. Uh, if I call it a block, I will, <laughs> I, I, they'll, they'll cheer me like that, 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 I, I can understand how that would seep in, even if you're not aware of it. And so, you know, I, I think that's just part of college basketball. And Kansas is obviously an extreme example because that building is um, – the building's intimidating. Like, it, like the, the Rock Chalk Jayhawk chant is awesome. And, like, that, that place is – you know you are in Kansas's uh, field house when, you, when you're in that place, whether you're there as a, as a media member or a fan or, or even an official – and um, also, I think it's worth noting, and again, let me be clear, I didn't uh, watch that game closely enough to know if this were the case, but, you know, it's sort of a cliche. I'm not even sure if it's true, but people say it all the time. You know, when you, when you play defense the way West Virginia plays defense, um, it, it, it can be problematic on the road because you will get, you, you'll get called for fouls that, that you won't get called for when you're at home. You know, when you're constantly pressuring the ball, constantly touching people, um, you know, it'll draw a whistle on the road in ways that it will not draw a whistle uh, at home, I think there's been studies to back that up as well, that teams that play the way West Virginia plays um, are, are vastly different at home um, than they are a- away from home. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, l- listen, if I were coaching a basketball team and the other team shot 35 and, I, and my team shot two, I'd be going crazy as well. But I don't know if that, if that discrepancy um, alone means that the refs were just horrendous. I'm sure they missed something, and I'm confident that they blew a whistle at some point when they shouldn't have, but uh, I doubt every call was a, a missed call and every call was a, a bad call. Before we move out of the Big 12, um, uh, on Trey Young, uh, you know, again, I, I mentioned he didn't shoot the ball well. 3 of 10 from three-point range, range, 7 of 21 from the field. Um, I do think he is starting to lose, um, not, not starting, continuing to lose whatever grip he had on the National Player of the Year race. If I were voting today, I would still vote for him because I still think he's, um, you know, a guy leading the nation in scoring and assist on a, on a team that's going to play in the NCAA tournament that would be playing in the NCAA tournament if it started today. That's going to be good enough for me. And I thought Seth Davis made a good point on the Inside College Basketball show on CBS today before uh, – on CBS earlier today before um, Michigan beat Ohio State. He said it's Player of the Year. It's not player of the month. Um, You know, Trey is having a bad month, but he's had an amazing season. If I just gave you the numbers on the season and didn't explain to you, you know, what he did in November, December, as opposed to what he did in January, February, I just said, hey, here's this season statistics. You would say, yeah, that looks like the player of the year. So right now I'd still vote for him. But um, if Oklahoma doesn't start winning games and good luck, because next is at Kansas. So they probably ain't winning that one. um, It's going to be it's going to be difficult for him. And there are obviously you know, other um, other candidates out there that are, you know, being statistically great as well on, you know, consensus top 10 teams. All right. So outside, the, you know, within the Big 12, actually, there are three teams that uh, that are reasonably on the bubble at this point. Kansas State, Texas and Baylor. All those teams won their games 
this weekend. Kansas State won at home against Iowa State. Texas obviously got the win at Oklahoma. And then Baylor gets just a massive, massive win at home against Texas Tech. To me, though, and we're going to get to Villanova Xavier. That was the game of the weekend. We'll talk on that and some other stuff. But, uh, but how about all the bubble teams, GP, that got wins here. Now, every year the bubble is weak. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's endemic to being uh, a bubble team and, and the whole notion of the bubble. You are, you, are a, you are not a strong team. You will not have a strong resume. But um, I'm not sure I want to hear that this is a historically weak bubble, which obviously happens annually. Um, might not be the case. How about this? Almost every single team that you would reasonably put on the bubble or just off of it, and let's define that as teams, you know, maybe floating along that 10 line or worse uh, in, in many brackets right now and teams in that first four, next four out, maybe even a few more off the radar. Well, they all got victories this week, so it's going to make for a very interesting race as we head toward March here uh, where victories could mean a whole hell of a lot more. I'm going to run them down for you just so listeners can get an idea because this might have slipped past you, but teams that are not in the top 25 are fighting to get in. Well, the Bonnies won at Rhode Island, and what a hell of a game that was on Friday night. Honestly, one of the five or six best games I've watched all season. St. Bonaventure got a tremendous win, a really well-played game, and now, yeah, they are in the mix for an at-large, but they needed that win in order to, to keep their case alive they're able to win at home and that was big time butler which was basically comfortably in they in, in winning against providence i guess they dodged falling onto the bubble okay um they got the win then conversely uh providence lost so if you want to consider them still a, a quasi bubble team that's one of the few losses we have in fact the only other one that i think applies is a true bubble team louisville losing at home to north carolina i do want to let listeners know that we have recorded this podcast before we know the result to the penn state game the temple game and the nebraska game those are all three bubble teams um whose outcomes we don't know yet so those might be the only ones or could be the only other ones that apply but let's run down the list because that's not it you've got ucla one at home versus oregon in overtime nc state one at wake forest usc one against arizona oregon state excuse me Syracuse got a big win against Miami Washington won against Colorado Utah sneaky resume we got to start talking about the Utes there they win at Washington State and they are certainly building a case slowly but surely Maryland is still on the fringes but it did win at home versus Rutgers which was downright necessary Marquette steals one against Creighton and Marquette's the the, the team that will not die um, when you look at their resume overall there's a lot of interesting things there they're going to have to have a semifinal run in the Big East tournament at minimum in my opinion to to feel comfortable in getting a bid, but nevertheless, they're still on they're still on the board with that win against the Blue Jays. And then two other teams from non-major seven conferences: Boise State won at home versus Air Force. Boise State's just trying to to have enough there if Nevada gets the auto bid out of the Mountain West. And then Middle Tennessee won at Louisiana Tech. Kermit Davis, shout out, 400 career wins, and they have no more road games left in Conference USA. They are building themselves the kind of resume where if they get to the CUSA championship game, or maybe even short of that, the semifinals, and they don't lose until then, they could have a pretty solid case overall. So this was a big-time weekend for bubble teams. Keep that in mind going forward, because if those teams can, or a majority of those teams can still kind of steal wins here or there, the ones that don't are going to have a tough task trying, trying to break through. And one team that is probably on the bubble now after losing uh, yesterday at Vanderbilt, Florida. Like, what are they doing? They've now lost two straight in four of their last six. They're eight and six in the SEC, and they got swept by Georgia. Um, they lost at home to Alabama, and now they've lost at Vanderbilt. And if you look at their four remaining regular season games, like, not good. They got to go to Tennessee on Wednesday, 
Now, Tennessee just lost as well, so who knows. But still, to Tennessee, then they get Auburn at home. So now you got to go to the t- play the team on the road that's second in the SEC right now. Then come home and play the league leaders after that. Then you got to go to Alabama, which is obviously playing well despite the loss at Kentucky on Saturday. And then you got to close with a home game against Kentucky. Um, now Florida's got some work to do. That's a team that was in the top ten early in the season and obviously struggling now. And Jerry Palm has them in the first four. So if they're in the first four right now and they don't close okay – um, um, things could get uh, obviously difficult for them. Let's move on to uh, what was the uh, game of the day. I don't know if it was the best game of the day, but it was certainly on paper uh, the biggest game of the day on Saturday, and that was uh, Villanova going to Xavier. Both of us on Friday's podcast picked Xavier to win, so uh, obviously they had no shot, and uh, they uh, just get rolled by Villanova. I mean, Villanova jumped out on them big early, I think they were up by maybe 19 points. Xavier came back in the second half and made it a one-possession game briefly, but then Villanova closed um, tremendously. They end up winning 95-79. So now you've got a, uh, a tie in the loss column atop the Big East standings. In other words, it looks like Villanova now has a uh, – uh, certainly they have a more realistic chance than they had this time yesterday to uh, extend their streak of Big East titles to five. Again, they're tied in the loss column. Uh, with Xavier, and I think Xavier's got a little bit easier, if not a lot easier schedule. They got fewer games left, and I think their games are easier. So Xavier still um, uh, might be the favorite, but I think the most likely outcome now is a is a tie atop the league standings, and that works. That will extend uh, the streak uh, to five years. So uh, Villanova was awesome. Uh, Mikel Bridges was awesome. Ten of fifteen from the field. Uh, just knocking down pro shots, too. I mean, just coming off of screens, catch and shoot. I mean, he looked like an NBA player, which is why he's now projected as a as a, as a lottery pick. Um, you know, just big shot after big shot after big shot. They end up uh, 16 of 34 from beyond the arc, Villanova does, and uh, go into that environment, win in the, on the road. And I didn't know this until our, our buddy Jeff Eisenberg tweeted it, but it is incredible. So now since Xavier has joined the Big East, uh, Villanova and Xavier played 11 times, and Villanova is 10-1 and one against Xavier, and they've won those 10 games by an average of 18.4 points. Now, as I wrote in the column, b- being 10-1 and one, uh, against with, with an average margin of victory of 18.4 against basically any program in America would be great. Like, if you were Duke and you played, um, I don't know, like who named – like whatever the worst or one of the worst um, big you know, ACC teams is. It's just it, obviously right now it's Pitt. Like if in an 11-game stretch you were 10-1 and one against Pitt with an 18.4 margin of victory, like that would be phenomenal. My point being the idea that uh, Xavier – I mean that Villanova is able to do that to Xavier, a team that's been to four straight uh, NCAA tournaments, that's gone to the Sweet 16 twice, the Elite Eight once, that's ranked in the top 10 right now, that's averaging like 23, 24 wins per season. I don't know that any great program has dominated another great program over the past five years like Villanova has dominated Xavier. It's remarkable. It's shocking, even given how good Villanova's been. Let's not downplay how consistent Xavier's been under Chris Mack. I think, in a weird way, this is still the best thing for the Big East. You've got a great situation here 
where since the conference reformed, and that started in the 2013-2014 season, that first season, which was the year of adjustment, four teams made the tournament that season, but Nova was a two, and remember, that was McDermott. They were a three that season, but had a letdown in the tournament. The next season, six programs made it, including Villanova, which was a one the year after that. Five made it. Villanova and Xavier both landed on the two line. And then last season, of course, Nova was a one again, and they got seven into the field. So what's happened here, and by the way, I think we're in for we're in, we're due for a firm six. Like Xavier, Nova, Providence, Butler, Creighton, Seton Hall are probably going to get in. Maybe Marquette sneaks into seven, but let's just say six here. The Big East has gotten to a situation here where it's reliable for five-plus bids on an annual basis, which is awesome. That's 50% of your league. And you've got other teams that are nationally ranked, that are hopping in and out of the top ten. And in terms of Creighton or Butler or Seton Hall or Providence, they're just weaving in and out of the rankings. So they're relevant you know, throughout the course of a season. But despite all that, you still have a freaking powerhouse of a program. So this is Villanova's league. The Iron Throne belongs to the Wildcats, but it's not totally kicking everyone else to the side to the point where it's making the rest of the league look inferior. No. Out of conference, the teams are good enough. The games are still compelling enough. So for the Big East, I actually think what's happened here is the best possible scenario for what, they, what they're looking for. It would have been great for Xavier and its one seed chances, which are still alive, but if it, if it, had, been, if it had been able to get that win... Damn, that would have been that would have been just humongous. Couldn't pull it off. Um, but respect to Villanova, man. The way they played that game yesterday was—it's just one of those instances where you're watching them play that kind of game on the road, and you're like, "How am I not going to pick this team to win?" the NCAA tournament because they don't have Phil Booth back yet, but he's expected to return soon. But they're getting like big plays and good minutes out of freshman Colin Gillespie, Jermaine Samuels. I remember watching this kid on the recruiting trail out in Vegas a couple years ago, and he just looks like the player that like two years from now, Jermaine Samuels is going to be like a top two player on that roster. And you just know what he's going to be all big East potential. He's just a freshman right now. He's just getting, you know, eight, 10, 12 minutes a game, but it's more and more important. And uh, they didn't even need a huge game out of Brunson. And that's the irony here. If, if Nova had one in huge, fashion and Brunson had gone off then we would have been talking like okay now Brunson maybe ahead of Trey Young now Trayvon blew it in a loss had a really nice game had 26 points Brunson had just 11 played well eight assists don't get me wrong but it wasn't a blow you away performance because that's the thing with Villanova doesn't necessarily have to be Brunson blowing you away Dante DiVincenzo is a stud Pascal made some big shots Omari Spellman will kill you every now and then a very good three-point shooter for his size and of course you mentioned Bridges so yeah Nova looks uh Looks great at this point, and um, if you, if I may, uh, kind of uh, squeeze topics here and, and segues, you have Nova still behind Michigan State, and if you are evaluating recency, uh, recent performances, um, you can take into account. Nova's losses, that's fair. If you're evaluating overall resume, I think at this point Nova's got to be ahead of, of the Spartans. So, you know, feel free to uh, to state your case there, and then we can transition and talk about just what, what on earth happened to Northwestern on Saturday. Sure. Um, okay, so I obviously quote top 50 wins all the time. I, yes, I do for people who uh, ask. I look at top 25 wins within that group. I look at where the games were played. Uh, within that group, uh, the losses matter to me as well, and it is undeniable that Villanova's got better wins. You know, they've got nine top 50 Ken Palm wins right now, um, including that regular season sweep of of Xavier. Um, Michigan State only has six top 50 wins, but Michigan State has zero sub 25 losses. Like Michigan State's losses are, let me call them up, make sure I've got it right. It's Duke, it is Michigan, and it's Ohio State. 
So the three losses are to three top 25 teams, whereas Villanova has has worse losses. You know, they, they lost at Butler. And though, um, you know, Butler has spent time in the top 25 this year, you know, right now Butler's more of a bubble team than, than a top 25 team. And then they lost to St. John's, which is a sub-70 Ken Palm team. And they lose to Providence, which is a, a sub-65 Ken Palm team. So I'm not trying to argue that Michigan State's got better wins. They clearly don't. But they got way better losses. And beyond that, I had Michigan State ranked second in the country um, on Saturday morning. And they went out and won a road game. I don't like dropping teams for winning. Now, sometimes a team will move up because uh, there's just no way to avoid that. And it, it pushes teams down. In other words, somebody will say, why did this team drop when it won its game? Well, they didn't drop as much as it got pushed down. Somebody jumped them, and it pushed them down. But I didn't feel it necessary to, to, to jump Villanova over Michigan State and, and push Michigan State down. I'm not going to hold Michigan State accountable for the Big Ten being crap. Like, it's not their fault. I don't, I don't think that they would be any less of a team um, if the Big Ten were better. But what they would have is, is you know, more good wins. Uh, they're never going to be able to get as many good wins in this season as as Villanova has because Villanova plays in a better league. Oh, it has more opportunities. Um, but that would be my argument, that Michigan State was already ahead of Villanova, so I kept them ahead, that um, Michigan State um, has way better has way better losses. And um, and I didn't feel any need to drop them. I, 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 to be clear, if somebody has tomorrow Villanova ahead of Michigan State, no problem. I got no issue with it. Uh, but I felt fine with having Michigan State ahead of uh, ahead of Villanova, especially after it came from 27 down to win at Northwestern. I was watching that game, and it was, like, bizarre. Like, they just – like, anytime Michigan State's down 27, like, they, if Michigan State were down 27 to Duke, that would be bizarre. But to a Northwestern team that's not good, um, like, what in the world? And I don't care who you're playing. Once you're down 27, you're not supposed to come back and win that game. Um and yet, when they got it, when they cut it to about seven with, like, ten minutes to go, like, there was no chance Northwestern was winning that game. Like, all the momentum had shifted. The better team looked, obviously, like the better team. And that was a, a remarkable win. I know if you're Tom Izzo, you'd rather, you'd rather not fall behind and have to, have to do it in the way that they had to do it. But to get out of there with a win once they were down like that, like, that's pretty impressive stuff. All right, I got a few thoughts here. One, I would have Villanova over Michigan State if I had a top 25 and one type of thing here, but I don't have – it doesn't bother me, GP. I just think that at this point, if you take everything into consideration, I would have them over Michigan State unequivocally, but I have zero issue with your logic in that I had them too. They did get the win. It was a road win. I just didn't want to drop them. I don't have an issue with that. As for Michigan State – they're on a 10-game win streak. They are now um, alone atop the Big Ten League standings with Ohio State's loss at Michigan on Sunday. And Michigan State's only two remaining games are against Illinois at home and then at Wisconsin. And sure, Wisconsin just proved that it can beat uh, a top-10 team because it did that to Purdue in the, in, at home. But I don't know if that's going to happen, which means Michigan State's probably going to enter the Big Ten tournament 28-3 and with a 16-2 and league record. It's turning into a, a really, truly interesting story here, um, given how good the team is, the issues we have discussed plenty of times on this podcast um, that have arisen due to ESPN's reporting, which 
obviously those at Michigan State um, in in some respects have a serious issue with, and we still not have not heard from Tom Izzo about this. I think this is going to come to a head at the Big Ten tournament. We'll save that for another podcast. But right now they are they are headed towards something something damn interesting. And that win over Northwestern was the biggest comeback in, in conference history, 27 points. It tied uh, for the biggest comeback in the past decade in college basketball uh, Twenty to come back from 27 points. And that is like, I guess you hear it and you're like, wow, they came back from 27. Like, no, do you realize how ridiculous it is, no matter the opponent, to be trailing by 27 on the road and come back and do it? And by the way, apparently there were more Michigan State fans in the building than Northwestern. Um, so it was uh, a road game in in you know in the physical, but maybe in the spiritual, um, it not. You know, it it could have felt like they really had the crowd behind them when they started pushing. And for Northwestern, ah oh man, they're 15 and 13, and that is uh, 28 games into the schedule. Last season they were 20 and 8. 20 game 28 games in the schedule in fact I remember it I brought up their their uh, their schedule from last year GP they had lost at Illinois and they followed that up with a loss at Indiana and I remember at the time I had uh, basically written in jest but kind of half serious like I don't care what happens like this team is getting to the NCAA tournament they did enough in the non-conference they have enough good road wins you know they're go- I have faith that they're going it was almost the inverse of my Kansas column from two three weeks ago GP in that like oh yeah they could absolutely like eventually not get there but this is going to happen like you can say there's a chance they won't get there I'm telling you this is going to happen and sure enough they ended up getting to the NCAA tournament Northwestern's had a weird year they only got 11 points in that second half and really probably should have only been eight points because they got a not a lucky three but it was a long three with less than a minute to go that got them to 11 points and um credit to to michigan state for turning off northwestern's water as they say to use a to use a bad cliche but they they truly did i mean it was it was ridiculous and in doing so the spartans kept their hopes alive for getting a one seed which i think they're gonna have to with the big 10 tournament to do even with all these teams losing around them yeah um i mean they're rolling right now if you were like trying to come up with a reasonable list of of national championship contenders. Um, obviously, as you noted, uh, Villanova's got to be on that list. Uh, I think Michigan State's got to be on that list. Um, I think Duke has to be on that list. You know, Duke won again earlier uh, on Sunday, won at Clemson without Marvin Bagley. Um, they're, they're, they're committing to zone now more so than they have at any point this season. That seems like a smart thing from my perspective, if only because they couldn't guard anybody man to man. But um, yeah, it, it, it's funny, you know. As you know, the, it, I don't want to say every team every season, but lots of teams, most seasons, uh, you know, th- we get caught up in the twists and turns, right? The ups and downs, and there are moments where Villanova's lost two of its last three, or, or you know. Uh, um, you know, Michigan State is, you know, having to squeak by here or there. Or, or, my God, what's wrong with Duke? You know, they just lost at Boston College, and they just lost it. And, you know, if you just hit reset and take a fresh look at it right now, like the teams that were supposed to be championship contenders, by and large, like that's, that's, who, that's, who, we're, that's who we're dealing with, right? I mean, it's Duke, Kansas, um, uh, Michigan State, uh, uh, Villanova. I know that they're, uh, you know, they don't get as many opportunities to notch big wins. So, and, and you know, they're playing out west, so uh, they don't create the big national headlines as often as as the other teams we've mentioned. But but Arizona is, you know, can you know still 
playing well. You know, they got a multiple game lead in the Pac-12 standings. Uh, like the teams that were supposed to be great are, are, you know, as we approach March, and I think we're only three weeks away now from Selection Sunday, like they mostly are great, which is sort of interesting to, to take a look at. I'd say pretty good. I'd, I'd stop short of great at this point, but I get what you're saying. And I'll also say, you know, I'm working on something uh, here on Sunday night that should publish uh, by Monday afternoon on the site. Um, we're kind of getting the best of both worlds here because we have that, but there are a number of teams that have been pleasant surprises this season, teams that didn't make the NCAA tournament last year and now are, uh, are certainly going to make it, or a lot of them are on pace, and that goes from everyone from obviously Tennessee and Texas Tech and Missouri to even smaller programs like Santa Barbara has been a complete turnaround, and, and you know, I'm giving love to you know, those ty- kind of teams, Buffalo, Ryder as well. So we have had, as we get almost every year, some good turnarounds, but yes, a lot of the teams we were expecting uh, have indeed lived up uh, for the most part to what we were thinking. GP, I just have a couple notes here before we wrap up with whatever you want to wrap up with. Auburn, you mentioned Auburn, um, probably still on the two-line at this point they lost at South Carolina uh, the loss hurts but not as much as Anthony McLemore who was third in the nation in block percentage he's done um, uh, what was it a dislocated ankle or a fractured ankle in addition to another injury wasn't pretty at all and Auburn was already small to begin with McLemore was six seven and absolutely their rim protector so this is now three pivotal players that they don't have available to them on their roster in addition to D'Angelo Purifoy and Austin Wiley. And if Auburn continues to slip, they still have road games against Florida and Arkansas. Uh, they could wind up, could, I'm not saying this will happen, I'm just saying if they start getting uh, non-competitive and with no Macklemore, um available to them, don't be surprised if they're a seed or two below what you might expect them to be if the committee winds up judging this team based on the roster that's available and they deem that not having him there is a serious impact on their overall quality. And then I cannot let this podcast come and go without mentioning this. This happened in the middle of us recording here, and it is, it is truly ridiculous. Um, the longest winning streak in college basketball right now belongs to a team from the SWAC. And not only just a team from the SWAC, but a team from the SWAC, a program from the SWAC that has been notorious for how bad it has been over the past 10 to 15 years. And in fact, in 2012-2013, it did not win a game. Um, I believe uh, Pomeroy, maybe someone else at the time, made the argument that the the Grambling State Tigers team of that season was statistically like had a, had a real case of being the worst Division One men's college basketball team in the history of the sport, and because the Vermont Catamounts were upset at home by the John Gallagher and the Hartford Hawks on Sunday, Grambling State is riding an eleven game win streak. It beat Jackson State on Saturday. That is the longest in college basketball. And, of course, Grambling State's and so many of those programs are infamous for how they have to schedule nothing but road games against Division One teams so that they can support their, their athletic departments, not even their own men's basketball program. And I know we almost never give love to SWAC teams. I wanted to take the opportunity on the podcast here because this is what they did. They played at VCU, at Iowa, at South Dakota, at Bethune-Cookman, at UT Rio Grande Valley, at North Texas, at Georgia Tech, they got a home break against something called Tugaloo. I have no idea. That's, that sounds like it's frankly inappropriate, and I shouldn't even be mentioning it on the podcast. And then they are at Grand Canyon, at Louisiana Monroe, at Southeastern Louisiana, at East Carolina, at Seattle before they started league play when they finally got to play their first home game in Division One on January 1st. They lost their first three games in league play since then, have not lost, have won 11 in a row. Shout out to Coach Dante Jackson. Shout out to Grambling State. That is simply incredible. Um, longest win streak in college basketball. 
who we'll see if they can keep it up. If they made the NCAA tournament, it would make for an absolutely incredible story. So I just wanted to uh, to give them some some love there because uh, it's just frankly it's it's remarkable. And there are no, and by the way, there are no undefeated teams left in conference playing college basketball. Vermont was the last one standing. With that, it's the first time since 2010-2011 that's been the case that every single conference had every single team lose, lose at least one game in league play. First things first, Tougaloo College is uh, in my home state of Mississippi. It's just right down the road. No idea. <laughs> Shout out to John Gallagher. That's a big win. One of the real fun guys in college basketball. Um, you know, we, we did that poll uh, in the Candy Coaches series over the summer. Like, if you could have a beer or a drink with one coach, like we asked at the coaches, like, who would that be? And uh, Hugs won. I think Bill Self was second. Th- those make sense. But uh, if John Gallagher were at a bigger school, more well-known, he'd be on that list. <laughs> he, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fun guy to, to have a beverage um, to have a beverage with. Um, you wrote about Kentucky. Do you care anything about Kentucky? Well, you know, Kentucky was worth writing about because I thought that the way that they played was worth a column, and I didn't, you know, try not to overreact here. I didn't say they turned a corner. I didn't say the season's going to be different from here on out. But in watching the way that they were able to beat Alabama, I just they looked better than any other game, in my opinion, than they had in SEC play to this point. Parrish, don't know if you would agree with that or not, but they took advantage late. Um, they didn't turn the ball over much, and they were pretty good on the glass. And with Quade Green playing one of his better games, and then Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who just three to five times a game will tend to just make the right kind of play at the right kind of moment, um, Quade was really more running the offense, but they almost could have a two-point guard attack there if they really, really wanted it. You do that with Knox on the floor, P.J. Washington on the floor, Jared Vanderbilt on the floor. I thought that was a good mix there. We'll see if um, if Calops used that as a starting five or from a minutes perspective he uses that more frequently. We'll see. It was just it was a nice way to stop the bleeding for Kentucky. Calipari's last five-game losing streak came in 1990 when he was at UMass. He dodges having that uh, pop up back here in 2018. But they got a road game against Arkansas on Tuesday night. I do not think Kentucky is going to win that. But if it does, okay, then let's let's maybe reassess them a little bit. But they're just kind of still they're floating in that six to ten seed range as far as I'm concerned. But it was a nice win. Some props to Kentucky, which was able to turn around and look better than it has, in my opinion, over the past uh, seven to eight weeks in league play. I'm not counting the the game they won against West Virginia, which is obviously a Big 12 team. So, so on the last podcast, we asked listeners a couple of things. One, to go vote on the teams that we drafted, basically college all-star teams uh, that we drafted on Friday's podcast. And uh, the results are in. More than 1,000 people voted. And uh, Team Parrish defeated Team Norlander. I think it was 57% to 43%. So do you want to congratulate me on my victory? I congratulate you on your victory. I will say that this was not a draft, and this was not for an all-star game. This was for a college basketball, your life on the line. I liked my team, but regardless. And by the way, I gave you the first pick. So congrats on the win. I tip my cap to you. And the other thing we asked um, was like, because we spent about 25 minutes, it felt like, on Friday's podcast previewing the weekend. We went through a lot of games. And afterward, I said, uh, I hate that. I hate – I don't like previewing games. I don't find it interesting. And uh, But I do recognize some people do. Like that just might be where there's a, a breakdown between um, what I like and, and what other people like. Um, and so we, you know, we said, hey, on, on Twitter, let us know. Like, do, do you want more of that or less of that? And I, I don't know how many of the responses you saw, but it was like pre- it was pretty split. Uh, some people were like, yeah, it, it helped me. Like I, uh, somebody said, I would have never watched St. Bonaventure, Rhode Island without you guys talking about it and explaining why that was 
should be a fun game and why it was an important game. And Jalen Adams, like, I didn't know who Jalen Adams was, but you guys said he's been phenomenal, so I wanted to watch that. And, man, what a fun way to spend a Friday night. It was an awesome basketball game. And somebody else said, you know, it helps me know what to pay attention to on, on, on the weekend. Like, I don't follow college basketball every minute of every day like you guys do. So when you say, hey, here are the games that matter, here's why they matter, here are the storylines going in, it actually um, it actually helps. And so, yes, please do. And then on the other hand, there were people who said, I'd rather hear you guys talk about issues and tell stories. Um, if I want to just get a breakdown of games like most of the other stupid podcasts do that, I can listen to them. That seems boring to me. So it was split. And, uh, and we'll, we'll take that into consideration. Maybe we won't do 25 minutes previewing games, but certainly there's an audience for, for touching on a couple. So uh, let's look at the next couple of days, Monday and Tuesday, because we'll record again on Wednesday morning. On Monday night, uh, the big one is Oklahoma uh, at Kansas. Kansas now, after that win over West Virginia on Saturday, is tied atop uh, the Big 12 standings with Texas Tech. And Oklahoma's on that five-game losing streak. Like, if you can't beat Texas at home, or anybody lately, good luck trying to go to Allen Fieldhouse and win. This looks like it could be a bad spot for Oklahoma, but um, obviously we're we're pretty good at incorrectly predicting things. So mm. Who knows? We're both going to take Kansas to win this, but I, it would be pretty damn cool if uh, Trey Young pulled a Buddy Heald here. And obviously Buddy went into Allen Fieldhouse at the start of Big 12 play two years ago, put up arguably the best uh, performance, or maybe inarguably the best performance by any opposing player in the history of that venue, to the point where like the fans famously, like I remember Buddy going on Scott Van Pelt show uh, late night, and there were plenty of fans were just still kind of there, wanted to congratulate him. A few kids wanted to get a few autographs. Um, It'd be great if Trey was able to do that something and give us a really good game, uh, but we'll see. That's a tough task. I think we're both going to take Kansas there. Um, GP, I'll let you make your pick if you want, but I just real quick want to mention the other two games people should be aware of there on Monday, and that's Maryland. Can't afford to lose at Northwestern, and Miami plays at Notre Dame. Miami's just slip, 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 and continuously. Notre Dame got to win at Boston College. It's not really a bubble team right now, in my opinion, overall. But if it beats Miami, then it's going to work its way slowly but surely up toward that. A loss, a home loss by Notre Dame there uh, would probably be damaging to the point where they could not come back from it. They would have to win the auto bid in the ACC. Yes, I yeah. will take Kansas over Oklahoma, obviously. I don't understand how you could in- intelligently predict anything other than that, um, given where the game's being played and how the two teams have been playing. Although... Um, it is worth noting that Kansas has struggled. Um, even like I, I wrote about that earlier today um, in the lead of the top 25 and one that Kansas has lost three times in Allen Fieldhouse already that they that, that obviously never got Billy Preston. Uh, so they never had their top recruit. Um, they, they've struggled in ways that they don't usually struggle. And yet they're still on pace right now to be a top two seed in the NCAA tournament for the trivia time. How many consecutive years do you think it'll be if they do it this year? I got to be honest with you right now, GP. I was looking up famous Grambling State alumni to give someone a shout-out after to do our typical ones. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't hearing the context of what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> which almost which almost never happens. I'm all I'm not like you. I'm actually paying attention, but then I was like, you know what? Damn it. Grambling State, they deserve a <laughs> shout out for a famous alum, and I was trying to look something up and uh, I know we're near the end of the podcast, so I wanted to get that ready. Go ahead and set that up for me one more time if you could. As I was saying, um Kansas has has lost 3 times at at home already this season. Never got Billy Preston, so they were forever without their top freshman. 
and they've generally struggled in ways that they don't normally struggle, and yet they're still in position to win a 14 straight Big 12 title and still in position to be a top two seed, either a mm. number one or number two seed in the NCAA tournament for the how many uh, how many times in a row will it be? If they do, do they, it? This is uh, like a, this is like a half guess, half know it. Like I almost feel like this is going to be the ninth straight year because I, I think I looked at this in the past month or so. Am I about right? Am I in the right area? You're exactly right. It is nine, which is just unbelievable. Like to be a top two seed in the NCAA tournament nine consecutive years. And I know there's somebody out there yelling into their speakers. Yeah, but how many national championships? How many Final Four? I hear you. I hear you. But um, – I mean, nine in a row. That's where they're headed right now. Jerry Palm's got them a one seed at this moment. I don't think they should be a one seed right now. I, again, I think the losses should matter. But they do have 11 top 50 Ken Palm wins, and only Virginia also has 11 top 50 Ken Palm wins right now. So, yes, I will take Kansas. But they have been vulnerable in ways that they're not normally vulnerable. And so, who knows? But I do think the best-case scenario in terms of just like, hey, let's have fun on Monday night – uh, who wins, who loses, I don't care. But, like, wouldn't it be awesome for Trey Young in the only game between ranked opponents uh, scheduled for Monday night on ESPN, um, Trey Young in what will be his probably first and only game inside Allen Fieldhouse, if he could go off, um, you know, that'd be that'd be a lot of fun. You want to get college basketball. I mean, see, there's no NBA on Monday night. You know, like, it's it, – there's the Olympics, obviously. But college basketball will sort of have the – at least the basketball stage to itself. It's not competing with the NBA at all. And, uh, you know, Trey Young going bananas in Allen Fieldhouse uh, would be a lot of fun. Miami, you mentioned, I had that game listed here as well, at Notre Dame. They're on a three-game losing streak. Jerry's Palms now got them as a nine seed. Like, losing at home to Syracuse and just, like, you know, I mean, Syracuse led that game from start to finish. I actually don't know if that's 100% true, but every time I glanced at it, uh, Syracuse was ahead. Like it, it wasn't like Syracuse stole one on the road. And uh, that's a team that's obviously dealing with an injury. But uh, Miami just hasn't been at any point in this season what it was supposed to be. We talked earlier about, you know, most of the teams that were supposed to be good have been good. Miami hasn't. You know, they're okay. But they're just okay. They are just okay. And I don't think they're going to win this game. I'll take Notre Dame. Matt Farrell, by the way, I think made his first nine three-point attempts at Boston College. If he is able to carry over that performance, even at 70% of what he showed uh, in Chestnut Hill, Notre Dame's going to be just fine. I think this will be a close win. I'll take Miami to lose by seven or eight points, and Notre Dame to keep its at-large hopes faintly alive, and we wait and see on if and when Bouncy Colson, of course, can or will return. Um, I'll take Notre Dame to win the game as well, but I think it'll be closer than that. I think we'll look up at the under four, and we'll be in a, in a one-possession game uh tuesday night uh, two games i wanted to mention west virginia at baylor obviously west virginia coming off the loss we've already discussed baylor coming off the win we've already discussed you know scott drew's team uh five game winning streak it includes victories over kansas texas tech uh nothing's guaranteed but um they're playing really well right now and uh you know west virginia i doubt west virginia even goes home right they probably go straight from lawrence on saturday night to waco uh, so they're probably in Waco right now. Shouts to Waco. Um, West Virginia at Baylor. Hugs get it back straight or, 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 or Baylor win for the sixth straight time? Yeah, I'm going to take West Virginia on the road here. Um, good good point on that. I mean, maybe they flew maybe they flew back, but I wouldn't think you would do that um, to go back to West Virginia then hop on the bird the next day. 
Um, I'll take West Virginia to win this one. I think West Virginia is the better team. Obviously, they're going to play on the road here. I got I got the Mountaineers in uh, what I think will be a, a pretty a pretty good one. Um, but maybe pull away just a little bit late. I'll take them by five or six points. Yeah, um, I think Baylor wins at at home. Uh, you know, but yeah, and I, but I agree with you. West Virginia is is the better team on a neutral court. I'd take West Virginia, but uh, in Waco right now. I'll go with Baylor in a close game. And then, of course, Kentucky at Arkansas. I think you've already mentioned, because I was listening to every word you said, I think you've already mentioned that Arkansas, uh, you don't think will lose at home uh, to Kentucky. But that's a fun Tuesday uh, Tuesday night game between you know two teams that at this point uh, look like they're both headed to the NCAA tournament. Certainly. Um, Arkansas can just firm things up for itself, take care of business here. Uh, Kentucky winning would certainly – bring some more widespread in, in I guess Kentucky win or winning or losing you know they're just one of those programs that's a that's an every week kind of talking point there but we'll just we'll see how they respond to having a really good game there um I will as I said I'll take the hogs there uh Creighton plays at Butler Tuesday night there's not a ton of consequence there in my opinion it's uh it's a good big east game and nothing nothing much else there A&M can't slip up at, at home against Mississippi State its seeding situation is is day by day and then Nebraska has a home game against Indiana Nebraska really should not lose that game at home against the Hoosiers because Nebraska's resume is super, super intriguing. So those are a couple other Tuesday games just to keep an eye on. And, of course, I mean, there are other bigger teams playing, but, like, Ohio State is home to Rutgers, Michigan State's home to Illinois. Those just barring – like, we'll talk about those outcomes if there are upsets, but it's not something that you should be setting your calendar to. Right. I'll take Arkansas at home. And, obviously, when Kentucky loses, because it'll be on a big – every stage Kentucky's on is a big stage – I shouldn't say when Kentucky loses. I mean, we're both picking Arkansas, so Kentucky probably won by 15. But if Kentucky loses, you'll have, you know, people screaming like, ah, oh, Kentucky's back to be in Kentucky. There they go losing again. It'll just be a loss on the road to a good team. You know, some, sometimes that happens in, in college basketball. Like, I didn't drop Texas Tech at all in the top 25-1 and one for losing a two-point game at Baylor. Like, you know, mainly because I didn't think anybody below Texas Tech deserved to be above Texas Tech. Uh, but, you know, you go on the road and play a quality team, you're, you're at risk. And um, Arkansas is a quality team and especially good in that building historically, but, um, but for the most part also this season. So I won't be the guy who flips out if Kentucky loses um, at Arkansas. I prefer them not to get run off the court, but that's probably, even if you're a good, legitimate top 25 team, um, that's probably a game that you, that you lose you know, at Arkansas. So um, we'll see. That'll be uh, Tuesday night. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagle. And who is the Grambling legend that gets a special shout-out? Erica Badu. How about that? <laughs> Shouts to Erica Badu. And you know what? We'll do Doug Williams famously was the first uh, black MVP uh, quarterback uh, in, in Super Bowl history, and uh, he graduated from Grambling. I don't know. Actually, you know what? Also, like, I think it's Grambling State, but you see it referenced as Grambling as well. I'm going Grambling State. If there are any – Grambling State experts out there, if you could confirm that to us on Twitter, would appreciate it. But, yes, Erica Badu, and shout-out to the Tigers. That is a, just an awesome story, and it would be great to see that team in the NCAA tournament. GP, let me check real quick here. Hold on. Let's see the last time that program made the NCAA tournament. It would have been – oh, it's been forever, man. It has been forever. This is – uh, once again, tremendous podcasting here, but I'm bringing up the Wikipedia page. Uh, it's never made the NCAA tournament as a Division One program. 
So that would be awesome if it were able to do that uh, with a new coach and then the same year where I had the longest win streak. Keep tabs. This is the place. This is the podcast you want to be for all updates, Grambling State. Please go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast, especially you you Grambling alums. You're not going to want to miss the rest of this season. Rate it favorably. Five stars with nice comments. That's all we ask. We will spend three days a week uh, talking about basketball for anywhere between 45 and minutes and an hour, sometimes even more than that. All we ask in return is that you help us out over on iTunes. Please go subscribe, rate it favorably, and write uh, nice comments. So we will talk to you again, like I said earlier, on a Wednesday morning. Till then, take care.